There's a story that's been on the tip of my tongue for as long as I can remember doing this podcast. It sounds so dramatic, but I've been dying to tell this story for a long time. I just haven't gotten around to it, but we can't say that after today because today I'm going to share the story of the first $87 that started my radio career and the science of sacrifices. We'll take a look at what you can learn from looking back at some of those sacrifices that you made to sort of re-reap those benefits or the endorphin rush that you got from taking that risk and then watching it deliver. We'll talk about why and how I feel like sharing this story might help change your life as well. Coming up on Live BW. Live BW, episode 178, The Science of Sacrifice and Risk-Taking. Let's explore. This is where we live. Live in a beautiful state. So, it's about 1.30 in the morning. Nice, beautiful night in July. I'm the only one up in the house. Living with my parents. Just got out of school a couple months ago. It's 2012. I had been hired by my first radio station, which is WKYS, or Radio 1 DC in, in Washington, obviously. I didn't have to say that, did I? Anyways... Keep going. Um, I had been there a couple of months. I got hired in May, but I wasn't on the radio yet. I was just doing like office work and promotions work. I was doing different events and learning how to run everybody's shows. I'm running everybody's shows behind the scenes. A lot of shows you probably thought you were listening to them. You really were listening to me play their voice if you were listening to the radio in D.C. during that time period. But I was doing a lot of that between May and July. But then that night in July came, a night that I will never forget because my phone rang at about 1.30 that morning and it was my boss. Now in radio we call our direct bosses if you are an on-air talent. Uh, we call that boss a program director and essentially they are in charge of putting talent on the air. They are the head coach of the team if you will if we look at it from a sports perspective. They manage everything necessary to make sure that when the voices get on the air and they conduct their shows they are prepared to the absolute fullest degree with local news, national news, five production, great programming, great shows, the absolute best. In this particular time, uh, that program director was someone who changed my life. Her name was Nikki House, and I learned a lot from her, things that I still hear her saying to me to this day. So it was a very pivotal time in my life and in my career. Now, the rest of my life outside of work was, it was declining, if you will, because I was making so many sacrifices that I was getting pulled out of so many social circles because of how much focus I put into my career. And I mean, it's to enter entertainment industry it's you know broadcasting it's media it's something that you got to make a lot of early sacrifices to reap the benefits 10 years down the line to be able to work in this for 10 years you gotta you gotta pay a hefty price in the beginning a health a hefty social price if you will and I definitely paid that and lost a lot of friendships 
in that time period, some of them didn't get rekindled again. But the ultimate sacrifice for me at that time was financial, which I, I hope that doesn't sound like a jerk or it doesn't make me sound like a jerk. It's not like I don't care about relationships and emotional stuff, but money is just, I, I've had a very negative relationship with money my entire life. It's just always caused some sort of angst or anxiety. I, and I couldn't tell you why. It has nothing to do with how I grew up. It's just, I don't know. It just is what it is. So now in this big age and spending all this time in therapy is something that I'm working to. I'm actually quite proud of myself, of the work that I've done, rewiring that anxiety, if you will. But the ultimate sacrifices in those early stages of my career just came from the money side of things because I didn't have a car. I didn't have a lot of times money to get around because I was interning. I was coming off of interning and then when I I got hired. I got hired at like seven bucks an hour working like two hours a week. I mean, that's the two hours I was really on the clock. I still was up there just about every day. So it was just a weird time. No matter what, I stayed hungry, remained hungry through all of that. And that July night in 2012, I got that call from my boss at about 1.30. And it was a very quick call where Miss House, she just said, hey, I need you to come in. Are you ready to do your first show? Now I was laying in my parents' basement. All my friends hung out there and everything. It's like one of those types of basements. So I was just down there, just laying down, watching TV. I leaned up, you know, because she was, that was a quick call. She she said that and that was it. Bye. <laughs> just gone. And I was excited, but then I thought about it, like, how am I going to get up there? I have no clue how I'm going to get up to the radio station. My parents live in Bowie and the station is in Silver Spring. If you're not from the DMV, I would say that's about a maybe 25 minute ride. I say 25 minutes, maybe, maybe 30. But I mean, should we even talk about the ride? Because I didn't have one. <laughs> so it don't matter how far, how close it was. It's just, you know, how was I going to get there? It's 1.30 at night, so our light rail service isn't running. Our commuter rail service isn't running. The metro bus is, but it'll take me years to get there on the metro. And actually, I don't think that that specific route was running that late. So it was just, it was a lot. A rush of questions, if you will. Now, everybody sleep in the house. My parents have been skeptically supportive of my journey in radio. And I understand that. that that's li- Listen, well, my kid, if my kid says, hey, I think I want to get into radio, it's going to like, I'm going to be really skeptical. <laughs> and see, my dad started his career in the media as well. So he kind of knew some of the headaches that were uh, miles ahead of me that I didn't even know were on the horizon. But no matter what, I give my parents kudos because they had been very supportive of all of this. So we as a family were kind of looking for that first opportunity of me getting on the radio. Like they had just started hearing me like doing commercials in the area. I would pop up every now and then. I would jump into some of Russ Parr's segments. Some of the other talent would be like, hey, can you say this on the air with me? Or can you do this? Can you do this interview? Blah, blah, blah. Let's just little things that kind of showed my parents some progress, but it was like little hairs of progress. But the whole me running my own show type of thing, it's not that they didn't think it was going to happen, but it was just like one of those eye of the needle situations that doesn't happen to everybody. So for me to not just come out of school with my mind on that, but be in school with my mind on that as well, and them looking at it from a pragmatic way, if you will, just looking at how rare it is to get an opportunity like that. I mean, like I said, they weren't doubting me. They were very supportive. They definitely were giving me some time to figure things out, but I'm pretty sure they did ask that question of will he actually get on the radio. Needless to say, I went upstairs and shared this moment with my parents. This is all within maybe, I would say, seven minutes of getting that phone call. 
and me trying to figure it out. Now, I shared it with them for two reasons. One, to celebrate, but two, because how the hell am I going to get up there, you know? And I've always been an extremely protective person, so asking my parents to take me all the way up to Silver Spring at 1.30 in the morning was it was kind of out of, out of, like, no, that wasn't happening. The selfish part of me, the flesh part, if you will, was definitely like, hey, man, forget all of that. This is this is the opportunity of a lifetime. You've been praying for this for years, and you got it. You better tell them to take you up there. <laughs> they'll, they'll figure it out. But the other side of me was like, no, 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 no. There's got to be other options. And if there's not, then unfortunately, I have to let them know that I can't make it. It sounded like an option, but looking back, I don't really think that was an actual option to me. I was going to figure it out. You know how that is to be wanting to do something, and then you finally get an opportunity to do it, and it's like, nah, we got to make this happen, you know? So that's when my dad had the idea. I, I, I can call one of my guys and see if they can take you up there. I don't know how much it's going to be, but that's the best we could do at this point. They didn't want me to drive any of their cars because you, if you know me, you're going to laugh at this part right here. They didn't want me to drive any of those cars because at that time in my life, I was like, I was trying to be Paul Walker, you know, I was trying to be speed racer out there. And my driving record was literally, literally as long as The Alchemist, the book, <laughs> like pages, you know, and I'm, I'm only like 21, 22. Yeah, I haven't turned 22 yet. So I'm only 21. Man, it was bad. So my parents didn't want me driving, obviously. He calls his friend. His friend says, OK, I could do it for eighty seven dollars. And my dad, being a dad that's supportive, but also wants you to like, wants to know if you can figure this out on your own, kind of looked at me like, all right, it's going to be $87. And don't even know that that's like $32 more than like my first check that I got. Or not my first check, but like, but more than a check that I had. I didn't, I didn't have it. It's nothing I could, it's nothing I could do, you know? So he said he'd do it. He'd, you know, get me the taxi up there and to pay him back when I get the chance, but, but make it worth it, you know? And I started to say no again because I'm like, I can't afford to do this. I don't know if honestly, A, if it's going to work out, B, if I'm going to make the money back to give you. And C, I wasn't all the way sure if it was like something that I necessarily had to do. Like, was it one of those things where maybe my boss would have respected me if I would have said, listen, I don't have a car. I can't get up there. You got to find somebody else, blah, blah, blah. I was just rushing through, you know, but my parents insisted go for it. Went up there, did my first show ever. I, I, I still have the CD sitting right here, actually, because I used to have to make a CD of every single show that I did. I would have to burn it to CD and take it to my boss, who I was speaking of earlier, Nikki. I would have to take it to her office after the show, which is like, yeah, it's just a long day, long schedule. I get off the air at six, wait for her to come in at like 930, take the CD in there. Then we listen to it together, pick it apart and figure out what I'm going to work on to come back. But my bad, I kind of jumped ahead. Let me go back. So I still have this CD, you know, on the front of it, it says Giovanni Zeus. That was my name back then. It's just, I know, I know, don't laugh. No, I'm not Italian. I don't know where it came from. It's just, well, there's Italian in my family, but that's, no, I'm not Italian. I'm from Bowie. <laughs> um, it was rough. It was a really rough show. I mean, as you could expect, it was my first one, especially with me listening in retrospect. I'm like, boy, what are you doing? But I took the CD over to Nikki. We broke it down. She cut me up. <laughs> she humbled me, you know, and then she said we want you to come back tonight and do it again so i came back the next night now of course i had some time to prepare so i didn't have to do the 87 cab ride but we were able to figure that out as a family about you know how to get me up there safely and that's when i started to um actually my parents would take me up to the station super early 
like 10 p.m. And my show didn't start until 1 a.m. So they would take me up there super early and then I'd just hang out. And um, it was just a weird time. But it started with, you know, that night, then the next night, then the next night, then the next night. And I mean, I mean, it literally became my thing for about two years. And then that would catapult me to move to Buffalo to do my own show up there during primetime hours. And then that took me to Indianapolis to do another show in primetime hours for about two years. And the rest is history, as they say. But what I really want to hold on to is, yes, we don't know all the answers. We don't know how everything is going to unfold. So we really don't understand the gravity of missed opportunities, which is why most successful people um, tend to take every opportunity that they can get and that they feel as though they can make something out of. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to a lot of people around them until it starts to make sense, you know? So we don't all the way know what would have happened. We just can't see things like that. So I don't know. I can't say 100% for sure that if I would have said, no, I can't make it in that night because I don't have the funds to get up there. I don't have the transportation to get up there. If I would have said that, I I can't say 100% that I would not have gotten another opportunity. But I also can't say 100% that I would have. We don't know. That's the unknown. That's the past. That's That story has been written already. Now we can look back in retrospect and see what actually happened, which is something that I do a lot. I think about this story at least once a week, every single week since it happened, because it gives me some sense of empowerment, some sense of uh, focus and just a reminder of jump, man. Jump. Jump to fly. Like you can't walk and fly. It doesn't work like that. Like planes don't fly on the runway. That's called driving. (laughs) And planes are entirely too big to be doing stuff like that. Like, no, bro, take off, go into the sky and do what you need to do. So that's why I look back on that moment. Because it's one of those risks, one of those sacrifices that I made, which I told you how big the financial sacrifices were to me at that time. It's one of those sacrifices that I look back on that I'm like, wow, there's got to be power and saying to yourself, I'm going to take this leap, I'm going to take this jump. And when we look at the actual science behind risk-taking and and behind making those sacrifices, it's actually a powerful knowledge that really helps us or or helps me to understand why I love to look back on that so much. The science kind of helps me to understand that even as we get older, making sacrifices and the risky business, if you will, comes in smaller doses because our minds are more developed. So we kind of naturally become more pragmatic with things. But looking back on that is a reminder to continue to kind of feed that side of me that's not afraid to take sacrifices, that side of us that's not afraid to take risks, and that side of us that is like, we have to jump to fly. So I don't know exactly where you are in your journey, what you're trying to accomplish, whether you want to go back to school, whether you want to purchase that home, whether you're looking to switch not just jobs, but careers. I'm talking about really ballsy stuff. Whether you want to quit your job and start your business, whether you want to finally write that book that you've been talking about. Whatever it is, I think there's power in that story that I just told you that can kind of empower you to make your initial sacrifice that have changed the course of your life as well. Let's take a look at the science of risk-taking and sacrifices, and let's continue to soar into the skies. Coming right back at y'all. Let's discuss the cells in our brain that guide us through decision-making and how they change as we age. Mastering this knowledge can help us stay focused on higher achievement. It's coming up next on Live BW. Live in a beautiful state. 
Every year, over a million fires burn in America. Fortunately, firefighters are on the job, saving life and property, and you can be a part of it. Seven out of 10 firefighters and emergency responders are volunteers. There's no typical firefighter. Anyone can volunteer to serve their community. Volunteering as a first responder is really about having the heart and drive to make a difference where it's needed most. Your community needs you. Are you ready to answer the call? Learn more and find local volunteer opportunities at makemeafirefighter.org. It's Brian's World! Welcome back to Live BW. And the science today is fairly short. I don't anticipate this episode being super long, but it's definitely interesting. When we take a look at the process of decision-making and risk-taking, if you will, another term I would throw in there is maybe um, sacrifice assessment. That whole process comes down to the decision-making areas of our brain. Now, research conducted by the Carnegie Mellon University suggests that this portion of the brain usually falls into like that 80-20 split. 80% of the decision-making areas of the brain are excitatory cells and 20% are inhibitory. Now, I love the way they broke it down because this imagery really helps to paint the picture. They share that inhibitory cells are like the traffic cops, if you will. They're the ones that we kind of tap into when we are realizing the actual weight of the different risks that we take, the actual weight of the different sacrifices we make. And, you know, we do rely on those when it comes to um, the decision-making process, even if it's even if it's only a hair. It depends on the person. Some people just, just do without thinking. <laughs> I should say some of us just do without thinking because that's me some days. <laughs> um, but these inhibitory cells are the ones that tend to play it safe or would rather play it safe. Now, the excitatory cells, which I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think that might be the first time I've ever used that word. But those cells are the exact opposite. Those are the ones that give you that rush when you're faced with a risk, if you will, or a sacrifice, if you will. Now, the interesting thing about the inhibitory cells is that they're more dormant in your younger years. You're mostly built up of the excitatory cells, which makes you more of a risk taker when you're younger it makes you want to explore more which also scientists say makes you want to you know that desire to learn is there as well uh well i should say they're more prevalent than when you are an adult when you kind of set in your ways and your walls are up and you know those inhibitory cells prevent you from going outside to go get some more information you know but as a kid when the excitatory cells are really dominating the decision-making area of the brain everything is an experience everything is a lesson and it comes a little more natural cmu actually says quote we grow more inhibitory sometimes slowing learning but effectively assessing risks Now, it's not that we can't continue to learn things or uh, explore different experiences that we may have. It's not that we can't continue to to do that stuff and, and build on it. CMU says that adults can adjust to deep learning despite the inhibitory dominance. It's just that, quote, you really have to focus to change. You really have to find a way to uh, tap into that healthy skepticism, if you will, and know how to ride the bull a little bit. You know, know how to control it. And I guess a big part of that really honestly is doing that self-awareness research to kind of get to know yourself enough to be able to balance that seesaw between the inhibitory cells and the excitatory cells since we're old enough to feel all of their hard work that they're doing in our brain. And the way I processed that information was by saying that there will always be risks involved. Even as kids, there were risks. 
Like I, I talked to my parents. I, we talked about this on the podcast. So you already know. I talked to my mom on the way to work and my dad on the way home from work. And both conversations, I would say at least maybe two or three times a week, end up talking about those crazy risks that I took as a teenager and as a college kid. And I feel like every group of friends around me has a story of some risky behavior that I didn't just participate in. I was the catalyst of it. And it's crazy because in in that moment, I just didn't feel the inhibitory sales, if you will. The one saying, yo, you really shouldn't drive a car without brakes, bro. Like not even to go to the store let alone trying to drive 100 and 200 miles on a car with no brake. Like, it's just, I look back on that. I'm like, I can't believe I really did that. But my risk assessment processing is uh, is a lot different now in this age, which it should be. You know, it should be as you mature. That's part of maturing. That's the beauty of growth and aging is the accumulation of wisdom, if you will. And being able to look back on certain experiences and saying, wow, I can't believe I made it. And so that was one of them. But I talked to my parents a lot about those risks that I took and the things that I put them through and just looking at it from a different viewpoint now because which I would just say before this episode I would just say I'm older now so I'm looking at it differently but speaking in the scientific terminology that we just explored now we're able to look back on moments like that with more inhibitory cells than we had at that particular point in time it's a whole different feeling it's a whole different view a whole different understanding whether I was a kid doing stupid things or whether I became adult and still made some bad decisions we all do the key is that there's always going to be risks involved. You're always going to, have to pay some sort of price, some sort of sacrifice to elevate. That's just, that's my, inter- that ain't science. That's my interpretation of quote unquote life. I've only been here 33 years, so don't get too, don't get too amped about it. But I'm just saying the risks are always going to be there. They were there when you were three years old before you even knew what you were doing. They were there for me in middle school when I put this little, I plugged in my piano, my keyboard and put the other end of it in my mouth and got electrocuted. Like, it wasn't nothing crazy. It was just a shock. I don't know why I did it, but I did it. I just didn't, you know, there are risks associated with everything. So for us to move on to tomorrow and tomorrow's tomorrow and navigate the rest of this journey, trying to do the absolute best that we can for ourselves, we have to come to some sort of understanding that there's risks involved with playing this game. There's sacrifices that have to be made in order to really look out for ourselves in all of this in order to level up i ran a couple of risks when it came down to choosing to go to work that night not being able to pay my parents back that's one of them i definitely ran the risk of should i really be there is it was i right about this radio thing did i just want to step out you know even continuing to show up before i got that opportunity was a risk in and of itself because it could have all went went wrong you know i i, I may i may have never gotten that opportunity even on the actual surface of that decision on that night in July of 2012, it's 1.30 in the morning. There's all sorts of risks. You got drunk drivers, you got sleepy drivers on the road. Anything could have happened. I like to hang out, but you know, I do know now at, at this age compared to that age when it happened, which was 22, 21, I just have a different affinity for being out super late now. I just understand where, 
you know, the freaks come out at night. It's just, it's just different now, you know? But that was a risk that I took and didn't even feel it at that time. But there's always going to be something. There's always going to be a hurdle for you to jump over. And remember, the only way to truly fly is to at least jump or to take off. Jumping sounds so dramatic. It's interesting because when we take off, when pilots take off on the runway, they know exactly what they're doing. Well, hopefully. <laughs> but they know, they know where they're going, the final destination, and every flight plan is not just concerned about the final destination there that's such a long process to get to the final destination the entire flight plan is broken down into waypoints it's planning it's why it's called a flight plan they're not out there just winging it no pun intended and whether you're talking about the first flight or the one that just took off just now from whatever your neighborhood airport is there's risks involved with that too it just is Everything is risky, but with planning, with uh, focus, with determination, I think that's the true guide to risky behavior, you know? Just take off. Get in the sky, follow the flight plan, and get to where you got to go. Never stop trying because there will always be risks involved, and you're going to have to leap somewhere. final thing that I got from this was how natural it is to feel that anxiety that's associated with anything that's outside of the norm, anything that's considered some sort of risk. It's very natural. That was something that we could have a discussion about, get some coffee about weeks before this episode was recorded. But when I started to really dive into the research and go behind it, it just reinforced that entire theory that it's just human nature, man. It's human nature to just to kind of just stand there for a second before you take the first dive on a diving board it's human nature back to our imagery with you know the pilot and flying and all of that it's human nature to be just a little concerned about takeoff especially if this is your first flight or first few flights or if you don't do it often like that it's just human nature to have those inhibitions to have those inhibitory cells working with those excitatory cells it's just natural to feel the war between those cells and that's according to this research that's literally happening in our minds the quicker we understand how natural that is i think the less scared of it we are when it comes time to make certain decisions take certain risks and make certain sacrifices you won't always be given the opportunity of time when you're making these decisions that's just not how life works we, we don't know what what tomorrow holds let alone the next seconds we don't know it's a good balance of having good reaction skills but it's also about being proactive as well we don't know the intersections that we'll stand in tomorrow but knowing ourselves is a great way to prepare for the unknown and also understanding that it's human it's fine it's okay to feel those inhibitory cells when they're fighting their war. Without recognizing that, I feel like that could snowball into some sort of anxiety, which can be ultra crippling. You can ask me how I know. I ain't even gotta go to no research for that one. I can, you know, I got a whole different pot of information for that. But stay ahead of this thing and understand what's really happening in our minds when some risky behavior is necessary. Coming up on the other side, Let's dive into that specific night in July of 2012 and the sacrifice that changed Brian's life. We'll explore the factors of his decision-making and explore the power of reminiscing, next, on Live BW. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. 
Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's samhsa.gov support. Live in a beautiful state. So I maintain the understanding, the hypothesis, the thinking, the um, viewpoint. Uh, there's no re- no reason to belabor this one, Brian. Come on. I just stand by the idea that better may be on the other side of that risk. So when we look at that night in July of 2012, the first thing that uh, was happening to me or that I was, was dealing with is that that $87 felt like millions of dollars at that time. And that was because of the external factors that kind of changed the viewpoint of what it actually was. It was 87 bucks that won't even fill up some people's cars. But it was a different time for me. I was dealing with different demons at that time. As I got older, I started to really understand one of the main principles and pillars of business. It's also very cliche to say and hear, but it's true, if, you know, no matter how you look at it. People say it takes money to make money, and that's very true. That $87 cab ride opened the door to an entire living for me from 2012 to now. So it's 11 years. That $187 cab ride. Again, I don't know the things that may or may not have happened if I would have turned it down. I don't know. We don't We don't know the unknown. We can only look back and connect the dots on the information that we do have. And what we do know is that I paid $87 bucks for a cab ride, got called back to do another show the next day, and every day since then for like two years, which led to another job in radio this one full time this one prime time and that led to another job in radio fuller time and primer time then i lost it all and then got it back in another capacity closer to home it was only 87 dollars just like a drop of water in the desert our minds can kind of create these mirages that make things seem bigger than what they really are So just be mindful of that when you are taking these risks and when you are faced with the challenge of making a sacrifice. Part of truly understanding that sacrifice is understanding what could happen from you making this decision. Yeah, sure, the things that could go wrong. But what about if it works? It may be worth it. Now, I turned to an article on Elevate, and it's going to be linked below, just like everything else. In fact, I think that might be the last time I say that on this podcast. You know it's down below. But the writer, Kirsten Schmidke asked, if money wasn't a factor, what would you do? And that's the same question that I pose to you because it's just money. It's just money. Whatever your mission is, whatever your purpose is, I think it'll make room for itself. But don't hinder the growth and the opportunity because you're scared to make a money decision. Calculate as best you can. Leap if it's worth it. And once you leap, make it worth it. Period.
The second thing that I broke down was how important it is to be prepared for absolutely anything. I didn't know that I was going to get that call that night. I had no clue. Everybody, you know, when you're in, in your radio journey and you're an intern and you're just running around the building doing God knows what, hoping for your opportunity, everybody has that inkling that they're going to get that call one time. But you don't know not just when it's going to happen, but if it's going to happen. The key is that you always have to be prepared. Before I got that call, I was already doing what we call air check sessions, where you would basically make a clip of yourself on the radio. Now, before you actually get that opportunity of being on the radio, your air checks were things that you would create in the studio that was all fabricated. It didn't happen on the actual air. It's basically like practice shots, if you will. It's like shooting in the gym before a season starts. I did a lot of shooting in the gym. Now, part of that was because of the just wonderful, miraculous coaching that I got from that boss I was talking about earlier, Nikki House, who really was trying to drive home the idea of exactly what happened on that night in July. If I call you, you got to be ready. And I appreciated her for that. And she was really hard on me when it came, when it came to all of that stuff. And there were a lot of days where I'd be like, look, shorty, like, I get it. I got to be ready. But come on, what we doing? I'm trying to go. I'm just trying to go to the show. I'm trying to go home or blah, blah, blah. But she was just a very detailed person and wanted to make sure that um, honestly, it may have honestly, from a leadership standpoint, may have been a selfish thing where she just knew that putting me in that position was a risk that she would be gambling with as well. And she wanted to make sure that she was prepared to take that risk, too. It was a risk. I, you know, I was a kid back then. Yeah, I could talk on the radio with barely any consciousness today because of the repetition of me doing it for all of these years but that was a risk for her at that young age of my career it's just certain things with the FCC and what you can and cannot say and what you should and should not say the power of words understanding that it's not just about what you say sometimes it's about how you say it even delivering the news like that kid that night in July had an idea, but did not have the experience of all of that. So it was a risk for her as well. But it's all about preparation. She prepared me as best as she could so that she could take that risk of putting me on if need be. And then in her preparation, I was actually preparing myself to take that risk as well or make that sacrifice or answer that call to get on the air for the first time. It's interesting because it's all about preparation and it's not just me that's saying this. I look at Daniel again. He's the author of Psyched Up. This is his book that everybody's talking about with that goes into the psychology of just people preparing for different things. And what he did is he studied successful people and how they prepare for big moments. And he found that they all had a specific routine before each big moment. He talked about LeBron's handshakes with his teammates. He talked about, um, oh man, I forgot who the comedian was. I think it was Stephen Colbert. But he was like ring a bell before he went out and stuff and had his producer to say this one specific line to him before every single show. He found that one of the best ways to get prepared for some things, according to these successful people, is to really spend time on doing something, some sort of routine to help you get psyched up. And it's something that, yeah, um, again, talked about in his book, but I was led to him through strategybusiness.com. And it reinforced this idea, like his research reinforced what I was thinking. And it's something that I want you to hold on to as we move on. It's just that preparation is actually a fluid motion. There isn't much of an end game to it. It's really just about just being ready, staying ready so you ain't got to get ready. Another cliche that's that's just very true. I look at Kobe and the thousands of shots he would 
put up before the sun came up. I mean, it was like a daily regimen for him. And then you look at the results of that. I mean, he's one of the greats of all time. The thing is, if we don't know the risks that tomorrow poses, the sacrifices that we'll have to make, the decisions that we'll have to make for tomorrow, then we got to be prepared for absolutely anything. And if that's the case, it comes with understanding that preparation is not an ABCD type of thing. It's a fluid motion that requires our absolute undivided attention. And it requires us to continue to show up for ourselves and our future. Now, the last thing I want you to hold on to is, I don't know if you can feel or, well, I know you can hear it, but the enjoyment, the excitement with which I'm delivering or recanting this story to you with. I don't know if you can feel the empowerment from looking back. And it's something that actually the Bible speaks against, which atheists, you don't have to worry about anything, right? Um, I mean, and not just the Bible, but a lot of people, you know, a lot of inspiring and empowering people always pushing the idea of going forward and all of that. And yes, you should be focused on a destination uh, to, to know where you're going. Keep your eyes on the road so you can know where you're going. But I won't act like looking into our rearview mirrors doesn't help. And this is one of those situations where it, it did. Because I think it's key that you don't forget about the sacrifices that you made to get where you are today. It's like you get to smile all over again and feel that rush of making a good decision or, or that rush, that endorphin rush of something actually paying off after the sacrifice that you made. You get to feel that all over again. You get to be proud of yourself again. You get to be reminded of the strength and the courage that you had to leap. And, and, and in doing so, you get reminded that you can fly. It's being empowered by what you overcame. It's being empowered by the decisions that you made. Even the, even the ones that didn't go so well Because you're being empowered by the lessons that you got from those mistakes I urge you not to forget those sacrifices that you made in the beginning of who you are today To help you become what you are today What you've accomplished today It's all a journey And I think that looking back healthily is Well, that's actually a good mental health practice And that is self-care I reinforced this with some knowledge from or some research from um, a site that I go to a lot, a site that I send to a lot of people who ask for mental health um, help. And there's a chance that if you're listening to this, I may have sent it to you. But it's Psychology Today. It had an article up about how important it is to reminisce healthily. And it says that reminiscing is an important yet often underutilized method to help us manifest a state of pleasantness. There's a lot of good energy, a lot of good vibes from being able to look back on those quote-unquote fond memories of the past. What did you sacrifice to get where you are today? Think about it. Ask yourself that question. Not just in one arena of life, but everywhere. Personal growth, uh, business growth, career growth. What are some of those things that you sacrificed in those earlier days? What was that moment when you came to that intersection and you had to decide whether or not to go this way or that way and you knew that a step in either direction was slightly risky behavior it paid off didn't it look where you are now and if it didn't pay off if you're struggling with things if you're trying to put things together the key is to not give up the key is to not let those inhibitory cells make you a recluse the key is to continue to be, to yearn for experiences challenges and sacrifices 
the kids to continue to face those with courage and wisdom. And if you got anything from this episode today, another key is to make sure you're prepared. I guess what I'm trying to say is that we could all be one small investment away from our destinies. Connect with the show on Instagram at LIVEXBW. Reach Brian directly on Twitter and Facebook at Brian James Live. Answer our Spotify question of the day. Do you have a sacrifice that you made in your younger years that you're happy you did? Answer now and we'll get your answers recorded. Brought to you by Spotify. Thank you, Cora. Remember, you could be one investment away from a whole new set of tomorrows. Good luck and God bless. Good luck and God bless.